If you have your Bibles handy, if you can make your way to the book of 2 Kings, all right? 2 Kings chapter 13. I'm going to read to you a few verses out of the section that we're going to cover this morning. 2 Kings chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 14 down to the end of the chapter. But I'm just going to read here uh, verses 14 to 21 to prepare our hearts as we listen to the word of God. 2 Kings chapter 13, reading from verse 14 down to verse, verse 21. And you can just follow along there in your Bibles as I read. And as I read, I would just remind you that this is the very word of God. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it but now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. This is the word of God. Would you please pray with me? Lord, again, we pause this morning as we have testified to your goodness in singing, as we have read your word, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in our gathering. And specifically now, we ask that you would glorify yourself as we walk through this section of scripture. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in whatever circumstances we're facing, whatever challenges or difficulties lie before us, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to instruct us, to grow us, to guide us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do your work of convicting us of our sin and leading us into repentance and transformation. And Lord, we ask that you would be glorified by our response to your word. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. It was Shakespeare who wrote so long ago, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. Our doubts are traitors and make us miss out on the good stuff by just making us scared. You see, doubt costs us, especially when we doubt the word of God. Now, as I come as a visitor and a guest with Grace Church of the Valley, I know this church well. I know your doctrinal statement. I know that Grace Church of the Valley is rock solid doctrinally on the word of God, being inerrant and inspired as it being the bedrock of our faith. But I'm not talking about doctrinal statements this morning. You see, every Christian, no matter how long we have been a believer, struggles from time to time with doubting the word of God. 
Doubt costs us, and I mean practically. When we doubt God's word, we lose the good we oft might win. Maybe you're here this morning, or you're watching online, and you're struggling a little bit. Maybe it's not an open struggle, it's not obvious to everybody, but you're having a tough time. We're starting a new year, school starts tomorrow, back in the swing at work, and things in the family aren't great. Things at work are tough. Financially, you're facing challenges, and maybe most of all, spiritually, you're just not feeling healthy. Doubt costs us. What are some symptoms that we may be doubting the word of God? Well, a struggle with idolatry certainly reveals that we're doubting the word of God as we are attracted to worldliness. We might be more confident in our culture or in our friends or neighbors than we are in the word of God. And so we go with the flow of the culture and we worship our culture's gods. Another symptom that we might be doubting the word of God is despair, spiritual discouragement, where we focus on our circumstances rather than focusing on God and specifically what he has said to us. And so we kind of spiral downward in this, uh, you know, tailspin of spiritual despair rather than seeking encouragement from his word. Another symptom you may be doubting the word of God is hypocrisy, just faking it, right? When, when we doubt the word of God, but we know we're not supposed to, maybe we used to be confident in the word of God. And so we think, well, I better just fake it. I better just pretend like I am confident in the word of God. And that hypocrisy could be a sign again that we're doubting him. Apathy is another symptom that we may be doubting the word of God, turning away from God. You know, a crisis in confidence in God's word is really a crisis of confidence in God himself. And so maybe we just don't care anymore. We're just not engaged spiritually. You see, doubt is a silent struggle. And maybe if you're struggling with doubting the word of God, you might try to just ignore it. Eh, it'll go away. It won't go away. But we might think it'll go away. Maybe you deny it. Just pretend it's not there. Or worse yet, maybe you Google it. Listen, sometimes we hit spiritual difficulties and rather than have a good conversation with a trusted brother or sister, we get on that trusty source, the internet, right? We say, Let, solve my problem, Google, fix me, right? Well, we shouldn't ignore it, we shouldn't deny it, and we certainly shouldn't Google it. What we need to do is address our doubt of God's word by being encouraged to buy it. The problem's not new. In fact, the first readers of First and Second Kings were the Israelites as they went into exile in Babylon. And so as they're in exile in Babylon, they're reading about the, the history of Israel that, that caused them to end up in exile. But as they're in exile in Babylon, they're a long time from the glory days of David and Solomon. They're a long time from the glory days of Elijah and Elisha. And as they lived in a place they didn't want to live and they endured circumstances they didn't particularly enjoy, no doubt many of them, maybe most of them, were doubting the word of God. God said he would deliver us, but here we are in Babylon. God said he would be faithful and yet it doesn't seem like he is. And we're struggling and we're, we're losing. They needed encouragement, reminder. They needed a reminder of the power of the word of God. We all need this encouragement and reminder from time to time. So we're going to jump in here in the middle of 2 Kings. And I realize I'm dropping you in the middle of 2 Kings on a Sunday in January. But we'll get caught up with the context here and see what encouragement there is for us 
in verses 14 down to 25. In this part of 2 Kings, the, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms, north and south. Both of them are not doing well spiritually because they're being led by men who, do not, uh, who aren't doing well spiritually. So those men are leading the nation in idolatry rather than in worship of the Lord. This is what I call the section of the J's in Israel's history, okay? We've got Joash, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, king of the northern kingdom, and then we've got Joash. Yes, another Joash, king of the northern kingdom. Those are confusing for every seminary student. So brothers and sisters, you're in good company if it's confusing to you, all right? We're okay. This is what you need to know about the J's. The J's failed. In fact, maybe, maybe the author of Kings just is like winking at you here, like Joash of the southern kingdom. Yeah, he remodeled the temple, but he failed at the end and gave away all the treasury money and all that. He didn't trust the Lord. Jehoahaz, he's a bad king. His son, Joash, is he, is he the same Joash as the other? No, but maybe he just probably was because they all just failed. Like, does it even matter what their name is? They're failing over and over to trust the Lord. They're failing by doubting the word of God and leading the nation in idolatry. So whether or not we're confused about the names, we enter into a time of Israel's history that is really negative. But there's a lesson here to be learned. And admittedly, this is probably the most bizarre half chapter in the Old Testament, and I think that's why I love it. This is some weird stuff, but there's great encouragement for us here. So let's unpack what happens here in the reign of Jehoahaz and specifically Joash of the northern kingdom. It all revolves around the death of the prophet Elisha, though. So we're going to pick it up in verse 14, and the, the author of 2 Kings has already related uh, Jehoahaz is a bad king in the, in the northern kingdom. Joash is a bad king in the northern kingdom. Okay, but then he kind of circles back and says, I need to tell you these, these two stories. Verse 14, he says, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now let's just pause right there at verse 14. So, Elisha, of course, was the prophetic successor to Elijah. He did a mighty work in his prophetic ministry in Israel, bringing the word of God. Remember, prophets were the ones who delivered the word of God to the nation and to the king. He brought the word of God to many kings in Israel's history. He, in fact, his prophetic ministry was confirmed by various miracles. And so he was a well-known spiritual leader, maybe the most well-known spiritual leader of the time. And finally, now he's gotten sick and he's going to die. King Joash is not a spiritual guy. He is not marked by faith in Yahweh. He is not marked by genuine pursuit of the Lord. And so here he's king. This notable statesman prophet Elisha is sick and about to die. And it's not in the text, but we have it on good authority that Joash's advisors were like, listen, you got to go visit Elisha. And he rolls his eyes in that staff meeting. Seriously, I have to go see the God guy? We're under threat from the northern, from the northern neighbor, Assyria, excuse me, Syria, Aram. We're under this military threat, and I got to take time to go do a hospital visit. This dying prophet, a dying prophet who, by the way, never has anything good to say about me. He always says, King Joash isn't leading us right. King Joash is leading us in idolatry. And so I got to go visit this guy. Joash, he does his duty as king. He goes down and he visits Elisha. And then he uses this line from 2 Kings 2.12, which was, of course, coined by Elisha himself when Elijah, his successor, was uh, taken into heaven. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Oh, you're such a blessing to us. I, you know, again, he was probably rolling his eyes when he said it. 
You're such a blessing to the nation and you've been such a blessing to us. And, you know, you know the chariots and horsemen of Israel were dependent on your prophetic word and all that. But I guarantee you his heart wasn't in it. Elisha has one last prophetic work to do. And it's a sign act. It was an, an, a visual and physical act that he did with the king to teach him a lesson. Watch verse 15. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So the king took a bow and arrows. Verse 16. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. So Elisha, whether in bed or gets up out of bed, puts his hands right on the king's hands. Verse 17. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. Listen, just if you pause there, this was the burden of King Joash at that moment. The the military threat from Syria, that was the burden. That was his concern. And here he is visiting this dying prophet, and the dying prophet puts his... the prophet's hands over the king's hands on this bow and arrow. And he shoots this arrow out of this window towards Syria. And he says, that arrow is symbolic of the victory that you will have over Syria. Why? Because it is the word of God to give it to you. It's a dramatic picture of the power of the word of God, that that the word of God delivered through the prophet is more important than the king's hands. The king needs the prophet's hands to go over his as he shoots this arrow. It's a promise. It's a prophetic sign act that's a promise of the grace of God. Because as the prophet gives the word of God, it mediates the grace of God. The word of God mediates the grace of God. And so here, the prophet Elisha, in his dying last act as a prophet, he says, I just want you to know, Joash, even though you don't trust him, God's going to grant you victory over Syria. And this arrow is the sign. It's the promise. The word of God here from the prophet mediates the grace of God to King Joash and to Israel. That's not the end, though. Watch verse 18. And he said, take the arrows. This is Elisha speaking to the king. Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now, if you just pause right there in the middle of verse 20, we have scoured Old Testament era documents in Assyrian, Akkadian, other ancient languages. We have no evidence that the king should have known how many times he was supposed to hit the arrows on the ground. There's no secret Egyptian text. There's no like hidden proverb somewhere. If the, king, if the prophet asks the king to hit arrows on the ground, he needs to do it at least five or six times. If I asked you to hit arrows on the ground, I have no idea how many times you would do it. The point is not the number here. I think the point is the symbolic, once again, eye roll of King Joash. It's not hard to imagine. Here he takes the arrows and Elisha there, again on his deathbed, says, hit the the arrows on the ground. And he's like, seriously? Seriously, old man? This is what we're doing? We're hitting arrows on the ground? Okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to dance for rain next? Like, what, what do you want me to do? Wait, wait, no, what's, okay, you want to hit the ground? Okay, I hit the ground. So I hits the ground and, and hits the ground three times with the arrows. And Elisha says, your heart's not in it. <laughs> you should have hit it five or six times. Maybe it was body language. He gave it away. I don't know. But the prophet confronts him. 
You, you don't believe me when I deliver the word of God to you, he says. You, you don't believe. And so, yeah, if you were enthusiastic about this, well, then maybe there would be some spiritual fruit and some actual growth here and progress. But as it stands, once again, you've fallen short, Joash. If we just pause here, these last acts of the prophet Elisha, they're recorded for us because they teach us something very important. Of course, first of all, we learn that the word of God mediates the grace of God. The word of God mediates the grace of God. If we want to grow in the grace of God, it must be through the gift of God's word. There's no other place that we're going to find access to this grace. There's no other place where it's available to us. The word of God mediates the grace of God. And it's shocking here though, but Elisha is basically saying to the king, you know that the word of God is more powerful than your army, right? You know that the word of God is more powerful than your military alliance, right? King Joash didn't believe that. Well, what about us? We could ask the question, do we really believe that the word of God is more powerful than the balance in my checking account? Do we believe that the word of God is more powerful than my position in my career? Than my ranking in my class or at school? Than my social position amongst my friends? Is the word of God really more important than all those things? Do I really believe it? You see, doubt will cost you here. It'll cost you when you believe you're your money or your relationships or your position is more important than the word of God. We'll miss out. We'll miss out on opportunities to grow in the grace of God. You see, we're, we constantly live in danger. We constantly live in danger of underestimating God's word. No matter who you are and again, how long you've been a believer, we live in this danger of underestimating the power of God's word. Our temptation will be to replace it we live in a day and age because of uh, technology, publishing, and internet publishing. We now live in a day and age where you can always get access to the newest, latest spiritual fad or trend. There's always a new study coming out. There's always a new book. There's always a new movement or whatever. And as you know, and I know you know it because you're here at Grace Church of the Valley, but you need reminder, right? As you know, there's no fad that can outdo or replace the word of God. There's no new study that's going to come out that's like five steps to learn this. No, there's no way you're going to replace the power of the word of God because the word of God mediates the grace of God. That's where it comes from. A good resource only helps us turn back to the word, grow more confident in our understanding of and application of God's word. I have nothing, wrong, nothing against resources and even new resources, but the problem is when we believe that the latest study is gonna change my life when we have to remember, wait a minute, it's not the study that changes my life, it's the word of God that changes my life. We might neglect the word, underestimate God's word by neglecting it, outsource it to others. I mean, my pastor's in the word. Isn't that good enough for me? Well, my, my dad is in the word. My mom or dad are in the word. Isn't that good enough for me? I'm around spiritual people. The guy discipling me, he's really serious in the word. The lady who meets with me on a regular basis, she's in the word. Isn't that enough? Outsourcing it to others. It's not enough. Because the word of God mediates the grace of God. And it's for you and for me. 
We could ignore it. In, in our day and age, we, we face so many distractions. I think maybe that's a, a big threat here. We underestimate the word of God, and frankly, we're just too busy looking at other stuff, binge-watching stuff, downloading the latest game, right? Doing all those things on our phone, the PS5, whatever it is, and, and we're just, we're, we're distracted to a point of neglecting God's word. So how should we respond to the word of God? Listen, if a prophet asks you to hit arrows on the ground five or six times, can I get an amen? Five or six times, right? What does that mean? It means we respond, we should respond to the word of God with enthusiastic obedience. If he says hit those arrows on the ground, you hit hard and you just keep hitting them. That's a picture here. A picture of what? Of enthusiastic, faith-driven response to the word of God. When you read in God's word and he's directing you to grow in knowledge and in obedience, you say, yes, Lord, I'm going. And so you go. You get excited about it. Why? Because it is the word of God. You might ask the question this morning, where am I struggling being half-hearted in my response to God's word? Where am I struggling just kind of with, with just spiritual malaise, just blah. You know, I'm, I'm not excited about obeying. I'm not excited about following Jesus in this particular area. Where am I rolling my eyes at the word of God? When we respond with enthusiastic obedience, we humble ourselves under God's authority. We admit we don't know it all and we entrust ourselves to our sovereign God. We don't know how it's all gonna work out, but we know that he is good and he is trustworthy and when God speaks, we say, yes, Lord. And we go and we run. Shockingly, the arrow thing is not the weirdest thing in this chapter. Watch verse 20 again as there's a second remarkable event surrounding the life of and death of Elisha that is worth noting here. So we're still in verse 20. And there we read, so Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. Moab is the neighbor to the east of Israel. Apparently this is such a normal thing. It's like clockwork. That spring is here. Uh, you know, the weather's gotten better. You can expect the Moabites to raid. So there you go, verse 21. As a man, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. I wish we knew this guy's name. We don't know his name. My daughter Kate thinks his name was Derek. I don't know. We'll just call him Derek, you know, for, for the purposes of our time together this morning. So Derek dies, right? And so he's being buried and they take him to the place of burial. In the Old Testament, they didn't bury people under the ground, they buried them in caves, okay? So here they take him to this area where there's a bunch of caves and it's the same graveyard, you know, burial area where Elisha, the prophet Elisha's tomb is. Now, Derek came from a middle-class family so he wasn't being buried in that tomb. It was another tomb in the area, right? But nonetheless, they're there for the procession. They're gonna take his body into the cave and they're gonna put it actually on a platform like this. They're gonna let it decompose and all that. His bones will be gathered to the bones of his fathers. That's how it would work. So they're there with the procession. They're bringing the body into this, this other grave. And then all of a sudden, they see this marauding band of Moabites coming at them. And they panicked. And you would have panicked. And they're like, what do we do with Derek? And it just so happened that they were right there next to the... They didn't care whose who's 
cave, whose uh, tomb it was, but it was Elisha's tomb. And they're like, give me the body. And they throw Derek's body into that cave and they hightail it out of there. We have no idea what happens next. Did they catch up to him? I, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, uh, sanctified fill in the blank there. We just don't know. But Derek upon being thrown as a dead corpse onto the body of the prophet Elisha, Derek, look at the text. Verse 21. As soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Derek came to life. We have no idea what happens next. Did he, I mean, you know, he goes back to his family, to live out a longer life. Did he die the same year? We don't know. But man, I can't wait to get to glory and talk to Derek and find out the rest of the details. Why does Israel need to know this? Why do we need to know this? Imagine Israel in exile. They're discouraged. And they're doubting the word of God. And they think the prophets, it was so long ago. And there's no power in the word of God anymore. And it doesn't do what it used to do. You know what? Is it even worth it? And they're doubting God. They're doubting his word. And the author of 2 Kings just says, listen, brothers and sisters, you just got to remember that the word of God is so powerful. The word of God mediates the grace of God and the word of God raises the dead. And that prophet was dead. It's not like the bones of the prophets were always radiating with resurrection power. God did this miracle to prove a point. To say, the prophet is the one who delivers the word. And yes, Elisha's dead, but he delivered my word. And just so I can remind you how powerful my word is, he orchestrates this whole thing and Derek's body gets thrown in there and he comes to life. And, and it's a way for God to say, you have drastically underestimated the power of my word. You have drastically underestimated the power of my word. Because my word raises the dead. There's more to it. You might remember from Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's a promise that there would one day come a prophet greater than Moses. Of course, we know that that prophet to come is the Messiah. What Israel needed was not access to a dead prophet's bones. What Israel needed was a prophet who could give life, not by being dead, but by being dead and rising from the dead himself. They needed access to a prophet who by faith in him could conquer death. That's what they needed. You see, this little snapshot of what happens with Elisha's bones, it's just a little foreshadowing of the power of the word of God who became flesh for us. Because the greater prophet, Jesus Christ, died for our sins and rose from the dead. And brothers and sisters, you don't need access to his bones. Jesus is alive and well today. But what you do need to do is you need to believe in his word. The word of God mediates the grace of God. And this picture of the life that the word gives is about so much more than this one guy. Now, how should we respond? Yes, with enthusiastic obedience, but also with resurrection confidence. With resurrection confidence. Here, the Spirit of God is, is calling us to be excited about and to be confident in His Word. You, you've underestimated me, He says. You've underestimated what my Word can accomplish. Remember what happened to that guy who got thrown in Elisha's tomb? He came to life, and God says, I'm doing that and some. 
We saw that the word of God is more powerful than military alliances and and military armies, but here the word of God is more powerful than sickness and death. Isn't that important that we grasp hold of that message in our current cultural climate? There's so much much obsession about health and, and staying healthy and not getting sick and all of that, but brothers and sisters, the word of God is so much more powerful than any medicine. In fact, it's the only thing that provides the permanent solution to the problem of sickness and death. Do you have resurrection resurrection confidence this morning? You know, there's still a pretty strong movement uh, towards like excitement about uh, relics and bones of the apostles and all that. If I told you this morning that we had found, you know, the bones of the apostles, we knew for sure, absolutely, we were bringing them to the Central Valley, I would imagine many of us would be curious, want to go see, right? But what if you had access to these bones, the bones of Elisha radiating spiritual life, especially if we're sick? Some of us have loved ones. In our church this year, we've, had, we've been inundated with cancer, with death, with serious illness, and if those bones were there, we could guarantee longer life. We would, we would want that blessing for our beloved brothers and sisters. We would. But the message of 2 Kings 13 is that you need a prophet's bones. The message of 2 Kings 13 is you need the greater prophet. That's what you need. And faith in Jesus is more powerful than even the bones of Elisha here. By the way, that's why the apostles John and Paul, that's why they call the message of the gospel the word of life. The word that brings life. The word that gives life. You know that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 or Philippians 2.16? That's how they describe the gospel. It's the message that brings life. Not just initial conversion, but of course that is true, isn't it? That there's a message of the gospel, the narrative of who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf, his death and his resurrection. That message brings life when you trust in Jesus. You are forgiven of your sins. You're gifted spiritual life. But that's not where the word stops. The word continues to give us life by revealing God's character, by exposing our own sin and showing us and leading us to repentance. It leads us in faith and it models worship to us. We could go on and on. The blessings are there, but oh, woe to us when we doubt it. When we don't take it seriously, when we don't believe it. The word is the means of all these facets of spiritual life. I wonder this morning, are you living in resurrection confidence? Confidence that this word of God, well, it raises the dead. And that by faith in Jesus, the greater prophet, one day you will be raised from the dead to eternal life with him. The story ends perhaps in an unexpected way. Watch verse 22. Now Hazel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. That's Joash's father, not a good king. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. 
When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Joash, the son of Joahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Now that seems like a technical detail, but do you realize what, what was recorded there for us? The prophetic sign act that Elisha performed with the king, it came true. They were victorious over Aram, over the Syrian army, three times, just like Elisha promised, just like the word of God said. And what's shocking is why this happened. It's not just that God is stubbornly persistent and wants to do what he said he was going to do. Did you see it? Did you see it in verse 23? But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them. I can't, we don't have time to go over all the, the, the details here, but you just got to know, the northern kingdom, it's a long history of turning away from the Lord. There is no earthly reason why God should turn toward Jehoahaz or Joash. In fact, uh, Jehoahaz, in, earlier in chapter 13, he prayed to God for help because he had nowhere else to go. And what's shocking in this chapter, it's not just the power of the word of God, but it's that the word of God mediates the grace of God, which they did not deserve. And brothers and sisters, although I don't know you very well, I do know this, that you and I do not deserve the grace of God. <laughs> but he turns toward us anyway. He, he leans toward us. He reaches for us. He's gracious and compassionate because of the covenant promises that he's made, because of the very word in which he reveals himself, where he says, I, I love so much and my glory is shown to be great by, by my grace that I'm going to pursue people who are not worthy to be pursued and I will rescue them and I will transform them. The shocking thing about 2 Kings 13 is that God's grace is made available to his people. You see, his grace is not dependent on us. Maybe you're here this morning and you need that encouragement. How should we respond? Enthusiastic obedience, yes. Resurrection confidence, yes. But also grace-driven repentance. That's an important phrase, grace-driven repentance. We don't repent to earn God's favor. By the way, that's a subtle lie that, that kind of leaks into our churches. This idea that, hey, I should confess my sin and repent because that makes me more presentable to God. And if I am more presentable to God, then he will bestow grace on me. Oh no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Why? Because God sees right through our act. He can see right through down to the dirtiness that's inside of us. His grace is poured out here on Israel. Why? Because he's gracious. Because he loves. Because he loves the unlovely and he's gracious to the unworthy. And so grace-driven repentance sees the grace of God, the love of God on display, and then follows that grace to confess, to repent, and to grow in faith. Why would God love us? That's a dangerous question, isn't it? Why would God love me? Because of my church attendance record? Because of how much I've changed for him? Because of how many missions trips I've been on or, or how much I've given to the advancement of the gospel financially or whatever? 
Why would God love us? Well, it's because of his covenant faithfulness. It's not because we've earned it. It's just because it's who he is. The word of God mediates the grace of God. And dear ones, we haven't earned it, but we have access to it. That's a miracle. In fact, it's a bigger miracle than Derek coming to life. His grace isn't dependent on us. And so when we doubt, this is the deal, when we doubt, the temptation will be to look inwardly to say, how can I fix the problem? But when we doubt, the answer is actually to look out from us and to look at the character of God and to see him as the one who fulfills his covenant promises, who is marked by, by gifting unearned grace and by gifting us righteousness. We have no business calling our own. And when we look to him, we find what? We find grace and love and encouragement. We find that bedrock foundation that will never be moved for eternity, and that's the basis of our confidence moving forward. If you're struggling here this morning, maybe, again, it's a secret struggle. No one else knows. Can I encourage you that, yes, you need to bring someone else into the conversation, but as you do, don't look to yourself for the answers. Don't look to your discipleship partner or your pastor or your friend for the answers. You need to look to Jesus himself. It's in his character that you'll find the encouragement that you need God's grace is based on his faithfulness, not on ours. And that frees us in two significant ways. It frees us from self-righteousness. It frees us from self-righteousness. What is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is deep down in us, the attitude, you know what, God should love me. God should love me. After all, look at my neighbor, compared to my neighbor, right? Compared to so-and-so, compared to the culture around us, look how holy we are. God should love us, right? No. We've never warranted his grace. It doesn't mean his grace doesn't have effect and there's evidence in our lives, but we can never say, oh, look at, look at the evidence of growth in my life. God should love me. The unearned grace of God is the antidote to self-righteousness. We are not righteous outside of Christ. We never could be. But it's also the antidote to despair, shame, and guilt. And just as much as we might struggle with the God should love me, sometimes we struggle with the opposite problem. When we're, when we're really struggling and we're honest about our failures, we might know better than anybody, God shouldn't love me. Look at how I failed, the things that I think, the ways that I'm struggling, God shouldn't love me. And we kind of retreat into this dark cave of self-condemnation. But you know what happens in that, in that cave? What happens is God shines the light of the gospel into that cave and he says, yes, I know I shouldn't love you, but I have turned towards you. My grace is for you. And the evidence of that is on the cross of Jesus Christ where he died for your sins and rose from the dead. So yes, God says, I shouldn't love you, but I do anyway. Get up out of that cave. Let's go. Walk with me. Run with me. Grace-driven repentance is a repentance that's based on our, our acceptance of the fact that although we haven't earned the love of God, we have received it. You know that, don't you? Here is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his one and only son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, the apostle John says, you want to know what love is? You look at the way God unconditionally cares for us. There's the baseline for love in this universe. 
The word of God mediates the grace of God, the grace that we desperately need today. Don't doubt it, it'll cost you. Receive the word with humility, receive it with expectation, with simplicity and with passion. Maybe sometimes our problem is we just get the cart before the horse a little bit. It's not a new problem. You know, we we think I'll fix this, I'll fix that and that'll kind of sort out my spiritual struggle and and we kind of leave the word to the end or we just leave it out altogether. It's not a new problem. 500 years ago, my friend Martin Luther wrote on this very topic. He said this, before all other works and acts, you hear the word of God through which the spirit convinces the world of its sin. When we acknowledge our sin, we hear of the grace of Christ. In this word, the Spirit comes and gives faith where and to whom he wills. Then you proceed to the mortification and the cross and the works of love. Whoever wants to propose to you another order, you can be sure, is of the devil. (laughs) Luther says, listen, there's all these other things that we need to grow in, all these other next steps of growth, mortification of sin, pursuit of, of sacrificial living in the cross and, and growth and sanctification. He says, but you never get past the word. And if anybody's telling you, you don't need the word, you just need the church, or you don't need the word, you just need this other study, or you don't need the word, you just need to keep your nose clean and grow here and grow there. Luther says, just tell them, that's satanic. Thanks, but no thanks. Because the word of God mediates the grace of God. And he calls us to respond with enthusiastic obedience, yes. With resurrection confidence, yes. And with grace-driven repentance. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how you're going to struggle this year, but I know you will. But when you do, let's never be too confident to go back to the word of God. It's what we need. Would you pray with me?